Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Bill Grantham. Great to see you, Bill, and a wonderful setting in your home, I imagine. Lovely things on the wall and great furniture. I can see behind you, we're recording on Zoom. Well, I, I bought this house a few years ago and I ended up, for reasons I won't go into, in buying most of the f- fittings and furniture in the house. Uh, and uh, the the owner, I'm glad to say, had very good taste, so she had bought very good things. She was also, I believe, uh, quite religious. So these are uh, colorful tapestries that you can see hanging on the uh, on the wall behind me. Actually, have religious themes, but they're somewhat abstract, and they don't actually uh, they don't actually disturb me in any way. And I like them <laughs> as much for the color as for anything else. Yeah, yeah, they look great, but as you say, they look somewhat abstract to me. And of course, you moved, Bill, from one of the biggest cities in the United States, Los Angeles, to one of the smaller villages in Ireland, Tinnahili. That's that's right. I, I was uh, 21 years in the United States, of which I spent 18 in Los Angeles. And then uh, eight years ago, uh, I moved uh, to this uh, I moved uh, back to Ireland, and then after 15 months or so, I bought this place in this small village uh, called Tinnahili, which is the very south of County Wicklow, uh, about uh, 80 kilometres from Dublin. And what's on your mind these days, Bill? What's preoccupying you, occupying you, driving you? Well, I don't know about driving me, but preoccupying me is uh, something that preoccupies me at this time every year and has done for the last 20 or so years. And that that this is the motion picture award season, Mm. uh, culminating, most people think, in the Oscars, but a whole slew of other awards uh, 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 coming in beforehand, the Golden Globes, uh, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, or BAFTA Awards, which I vote in. Uh, even uh, in, in the United States, you have the Critics' Choice Awards. You have, you have every major city has a critics' association, New York, Houston, uh, Los Angeles, all of whom vote on the previous year's films. And so you have not only a huge, uh, huge uh, number of different awards in this lead up to the uh, Oscars. Uh, They're almost considered like uh, qualifying rounds in sporting occasions where you have to get through the other awards to get to the the big one. Um, uh, And and it, 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 but these things are actually awarded by and large by Non-profit associations, uh, BAFTA, of which I'm a member, I have been for 20 odd years, uh, is quite a large one. Uh, it, it has people from the British film industry. Uh, and uh, I'm a member of the of IFTA, the Irish Film and Television uh, Association, which is quite small. Uh, many people are members of multiple uh, bodies. Uh, so, uh, you know, if if you're a BAFTA member, uh, you might might well be also a member, as I am, of IFTA. You might be a member of the Academy in the U, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which hands out the Oscars. You're very likely to be a member of one of the uh, craft unions, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, the Writers Guild of America, all of which hand out awards around about this time of year. And 
for me, uh, the, the the name of the game is BAFTA, uh, as I say, which I joined uh, sometime back in the early 1990s. Uh, and that, uh, what it, but what it involves you is watching an enormous number of films. Uh, the, uh, I'll, I'll go on about this, the, Behind the awards, there is an enormous uh, marketing and press effort on behalf of the studios who have financed and produced these films. Uh, there are PR companies, uh, all sorts of people involved in pushing one film or, or another. And they have their systems for uh, getting to the voters. Uh, so for instance, BAFTA um, has throughout the year, uh, has a lot of screenings. And these are screenings that are basically, by and large, not always, but generally paid for by the distributors, the, the major studios. And if you live in London, say, uh, you can go to a cinema uh, and watch new films uh, sometimes they'll be done with uh, questions and answers. It'll be a director or a, a writer or a or a leading actor uh, will be there, f- uh, and you'll be able to ask them questions. Unfortunately, um, because uh, I, although being a member of BAFTA, I don't live in Britain, uh, I don't get any of that. And what I rely on is uh, what they still call screeners. In the old days, the studios would post you. Uh, originally VHS cassettes and then later on DVDs. Um, and, uh, you would watch the films at home. Now, uh, increasingly, uh, they put up password protected websites, uh, which you can log into and you can watch the films on your, uh, TV at home. Uh, the one drawback of that being is that because they control the screeners, uh, when once the awards have been handed out, the website is taken down and you lose the ability to watch the films. When they used to post them to you, you could keep them afterwards. Oh, there was there was a rule you were meant to cut them up, but nobody cut them nobody up. Nobody did. You know? And Bill, you, you've talked about promotional activities. There was a very public scandal with the Oscar situation a few years ago over people getting rather splendid baskets that would be full of every kind of goodie imaginable as a gift from producers or studios that was seen by many as an attempt to urge people to vote in a certain way. And, of course, these were then considered taxable benefits, and this became part of the scandal. Now, you have a background as a journalist working in part on Hollywood, but also on French cinema in particular, as... in addition, a television journalist, as a lawyer in Hollywood, as an academic in media studies, what do you think of, would you like to get a basket of fruit (laughs) from X studio? Well, interestingly, I mean, although that certainly did go on, uh, and I'm sure to some extent continues to go on, uh, the partly because of the publicity the negative publicity mm-hmm. that that grew up around these uh, these outrages uh the associations like bafta and the academy and so on have increasingly strict rules uh, uh, uh about 
and I think the current rule is, and, and I, I would have to look it up, but I think the current rule is they uh, they can send you a screener, which they obviously don't do anymore, but they, they were. They can make the screener available to you. I think they can send you a copy of the screenplay. Uh, which you may want to read as, as, as part of your, your vote on the screenplay. Uh, I'm not sure they're allowed to send you any gifts anymore. Uh, I, I would have to clarify that, but certainly it, it shows that the studios, the, uh, and I use the term studios in the broader sense, the people who are responsible for the financing and the distribution of the movies, uh, will do anything they can. Uh, to uh, try and promote their movies over over uh, other ones. I mean, one example of that is that whereas these films are made available to you, I think on the BAFTA website there are more than 250 films available uh, to be screened. Uh, there, there's a there's a belief among studio publicists that people will tend to vote for the last film they see, and so so films. Uh, and of course, some films are also released uh, late in the year uh, for for uh, commercial reasons. Christmas, say, being a being a being a, a release time. Uh, I say late in the year. The, the the awards take place around this time of year. We're speaking in mid January. Uh, the 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 BAFTA awards will be made in about a month's time. The Oscars, I think, a few weeks after that. The Golden Globes have already happened. We have this. The first couple of months of the calendar year are when most of the awards are concentrated, um, and there is a tendency to make films available to the voters at the very last minute. And so what happens is, you know, roundabout Christmas very often, and you're, you're, if you're celebrating Christmas and you're doing all those other things, you're also trying to madly watch large numbers of films. And I have had situations where I've watched four or five films in a day trying to get to the, uh, trying to meet the deadline. And of course, that's not the ideal. Those are not the ideal conditions under which to, to see a film, but that, that is part of the, many calculations that the studios make to try and attract uh, the voters. How does one qualify to become a voter, Bill? Why am I not a voter? Well, uh, I mean, that's a fair question. Um, I joined BAFTA through its Los Angeles chapter, and I think very often when... uh, when there is a, a program of expansion, uh, it's some, somewhat easier to get into these associations than it, it is later on when their membership is established. Um, but the essential rule is, uh, well, in the case of the of the craft unions, you have to be a member of the DGA, the of SAG, um, and um, uh, or the WGA, and there are you have to. You may need certain number of credits for that. You may need to have, say, worked on under a WGA contract on a film or television program and got paid at the WGA rates and you were able to show that. And then you're admitted to the union and you're allowed to vote in that um, uh, for for, for those awards. For the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, really... Everybody who works in the film industry, including craft people, uh, publicists, uh, and, as well as the obvious actors, directors, cinematographers, uh, writers, and so on, is eligible to join the Academy. 
and they have a fairly small number of new members they appoint each year. I say fairly small, I forget, but I, I think it's under 100. Um, if you're nominated for an Oscar in, a, in, a, in the previous year, you may well be invited to join the Academy. Uh, I don't believe it's automatic, but it's, it's close to automatic. Uh, in my case, I was working as a as a lawyer on on, on movies in uh, uh, Los Angeles at a time when I think BAFTA was expanding its uh, North American membership, and I was invited. Uh, uh, I, I I actually knew the chairperson of BAFTA Los Angeles from my time. Uh, uh, as a journalist, uh, when he was in London and I was in London, and he invited me to join. Um, I have heard other lawyers tell me that they're now being told, we have enough lawyers, thank you very much. <laughs> we won't be taking very many more. So I always feel, you know, a bit fortunate to have got in when I got in, but I've been in and I've been paying my dues for 20 years. And uh, uh I, I I also uh, I, I'm somewhat involved in 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 production, and so I think I don't think my membership is invalid. Uh, with IFTA, I joined when they started, and I was just you know I knew the people who were setting it up, and uh, I applied, and they admitted me. Uh, just a footnote on acronyms: uh, SAG is the Screen Actors Guild, WGA is the Writers Guild of America. DGA is the Directors Guild of America, acronyms that you mm -hmm. used. And some of these have East-West splits organizationally across the geography of the United States. Yeah. Um, so I think you've exp explained well my, the reasons underpinning my brutal exclusion from such voting systems, <laughs> i.e. I'm spectacularly unqualified. <laughs> but what about once you're in, how many of these things you have to watch in order for your vote to be taken into account? Well, what they basically have is an honor system. I mean, now uh, in, in BAFTA, just being being the one I'm most familiar with, you vote online, you log into a website, uh, it's password protected, and you vote on it. Uh, you make a list of all the films you've seen, then you get the categories that you're allowed to vote in. Different different members are allowed to vote in different categories. For instance, oh. uh, 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 there's a separate jury of cinematographers who draw up the shortlist for the cinematography uh, award uh, and so on. Um, but uh, the system, in a sense, knows what you're allowed to vote for. Uh, based on the films that you've, uh, you say you have seen, you, uh, it, it pushes up the various lists and then you, you vote for them. There are categories... Um, uh, where you can't um, you can't actually vote unless you've seen all the films in a particular category. This is once they've done the initial triage of the, you know two hundred and fifty plus films down to ten or twelve films in each category. You may be expected to have to say that you have seen all the films in that category before you can actually vote. But it is an honor system. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the sorts of genres that you look at, Bill. Within the sort of the British context, but also the wider context, what do you see as trends over the last 20 years of your membership? Are you seeing some genres die, some genres be revived, some entirely new genres? And, and with the relationship between, if you like, the nominally independent film and the nominal studio film, by which, of course, as you know, 
I mean, in many cases, the very small number of films that studios actually make themselves, as opposed to have distribution rights over. Well, I, I one thing that that I found interesting has been the development of um, non-English language films in the last twenty years. And I think if you if you go, I mean, there there, there have been non-English language categories in the English-speaking guilds uh, for many, many years, I yeah. mean, going back at least to the 1950s and possibly earlier than that. Uh, but they tended to be, uh, and, and there is a system whereby, uh, as, as, as you may, may know, and the Oscars, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, whereby each country nominates a film. So there's one French film is nominated, one Brazilian film, and so on. Um, and, you know, the, me- the means by which those nominations uh, issue from each country, they have been subjected to some scrutiny and some criticism over the years. Uh, what I think is interesting now is that there is a, there's a, just a much bigger volume of uh interesting international films being made available. Uh, but I mean, in the case of something like BAFTA, where you don't have that nomination by the country, you, you're, you're basically looking at films which are made eligible, I think, by their having been... I think in the case of BAFTA, it's been by being made available for screening in Britain in the calendar year that the awards are covered for. Uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of interesting films coming out, but an actually a, a disappointingly narrow uh, set of choices. Uh, I mean, the two, um, I've seen some terrific foreign language films in the last year. Um, one of the very best was a Romanian film called RMN, uh, which was a about, uh, based on a true story about uh, migrant workers uh, legally legal migrant workers arriving in a small Transylvanian town, and what happened in the town when they found they had three Sri Lankans working in one of the factories there. Um, and for those of us in Europe who are seeing uh, a lot of the uh, uh, upheavals being caused by uh, uh, immigration and asylum policies, this was a very timely and very very well. Uh, Rod Phil. There was another film that I hugely admired, uh, uh, admired a French film whose uh, English title is Paris Memories. Uh, this is a film uh, drawn from the uh, attack, for those of you who remember, the attack on the Bataclan nightclub and some other sites in Paris about this is what, seven, eight years ago, where um, there was a, a, an attack by some uh, uh, Islamic militants who uh, killed a number of quite a large number of civilians, uh, and uh, it was a it was one of those as these the it was one of those events which is quite triggering for the population. Uh, people really internalize it. Anyway, the this film Paris Memories. What's interesting about it is they don't 
they don't make a film about the Bataclan attack, but it's a it's a drama, a peak work of fiction. But but it's a woman who survives this attack, an attack like the Bataclan, not the actual Bataclan attack. And then she she's suffering from amnesia, and she's trying to track down what actually happened and how did she survive. Extremely good film, very very well made. Now I mentioned these two films because uh, they didn't even make the long list in BAFTA. Uh, which I found very shocking, um, and, and which is not to criticize those films that did make the long list, all of them very good films. I had a sense that there was a tendency to prefer, uh, you know, more sort of classic genres of films, uh, you know, say like a police film, uh, over these, uh, these trickier subjects. Also, I think. And this is something that applies that we've already touched on with the awards. Marketing is huge uh, with these things, and uh, even within the limits that are placed on on uh, on studios to market their films to voting members, uh, smaller films and smaller studios may get a cinema release. Uh, and you know, in the case of a cinema release in Ireland, where I live. That means there are two, maybe three cinemas that will show these films for maybe two weeks. Mm. So it's a very, it's a very, very small window where they get seen and uh, they get reviewed in the papers and they get well reviewed in Manchester, but most people don't see them. And, uh, but I think even in the industry, uh, these films are not being pushed at them in the voting times and are just like falling through, falling through the net. So I, I, I found that this year particularly quite, quite, quite shocking. As I say, without criticizing the films that did make the list, uh, outstanding films, very, very interesting films, not making the list was something of a shock to me. Thinking of the so-called streamers in this case, Bill, and the streamers that are themselves in some ways producers, I was struck a few months ago by seeing an advertisement, I think, from the other NATO, (laughs) (laughs) the Association of North American Theatre Owners. And that calls itself NATO, thanking Apple <laughs> for releasing films that would be shown in theatres as well as online. I wonder what the story is, in your view, with entities like Amazon, Apple and Netflix, which are relatively new players in this, especially Apple and Amazon, but, of course, in the case of Netflix, already a member of the Motion Picture Association, which is the peak industrial organization representing the studios in the United States in terms of public policy and propaganda. Well, yes, I mean, I, uh, all of that is true. Uh, I think there is an industrial change taking place in the United States uh, over how the studios, in a sense, within the limits of antitrust laws, uh, work together. I mean, I think we saw it in the recent negotiations and the recent strikes um, in Hollywood uh, that there did seem to be a quite stark division between the old school and the new school um, in the in the negotiating posture of the studios. Uh, not only Netflix... Um, Amazon owns MGM, though I'm not sure that MGM is uh, is an MPAA member anymore, but they, they were out there on the fringes. Uh, 
as as new arrivals, as it were, newly minted producer, but actually a company like Warner Brothers, uh, which is now uh, owned by Discovery Channel. You know, that's to say a a a a a, a, a number of TV channels, uh, non dramatic non dramatic TV channels, uh, and whose um, who, whose uh, principal uh, David Zaslav has no. Background, no Hollywood background at all. I mean, he he uh, he quite ostentatiously moved his home to Los Angeles when he bought Warner Brothers, and he sort of. But I think his posture, uh, as that uh, like that of uh, Amazon, like that of certainly uh, uh, well of Amazon, sorry, and uh, and Netflix is anti-union, uh, and I think that did produce. Uh, some of the difficulties that the employers had in these negotiations, which, as you will have seen, ended ended up very favorably for the unions. Um, but uh, I think more experienced studio people had a better sense of what lines you could draw in these negotiations, and they were largely overruled by the the, the new new players. Now, I've got, coming back to the awards. Uh, it's really interesting, and I th- I still think we're in a transitional phase. I mean, we have a number of big um, streamers, Netflix uh, being the, m- the most substantial, uh, Disney Plus being very important, uh, Prime Video, which is Amazon's uh, streamer, uh, quite significant, um, Paramount Plus. Uh, which is finding its way, uh, not bad, but not huge. Lionsgate has just pulled out of the streaming business, quite inter- interestingly enough, just announced last week that they were packing up Lionsgate Plus, their their, their streaming service. Uh, and there are, there are a number of studios that haven't really worked out what their streaming posture is going to be. Uh, Warner Brothers, complicated by the fact that they already own some services like uh, home box office HBO, um, which they tried to turn into a st- streaming service, branding it HBO Max as a streamer, then branding it Max, taking out the you know the most celebrated part of their brand name and <laughs> ditching it, uh, and 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 calling it Max, which could be a bar of chocolate. That um, they they seem to be sort of floundering around the place. Uh, Sony. Uh, which owns Columbia Studios and TriStar and, you know, all of those sort of familiar brands. Um, they seem to have taken a position of not getting into streaming at all. And so they they, they may be licensing films to different streamers. Um, Universal, uh, which is owned, ultimately owned by Comcast, but uh, it has NBC, it has Universal Studios, uh, and... Um, it owns Sky Television in the UK. Uh, it has quite quite a quite a lot of things it owns. It has a rather um, uh, anemic uh, streaming service called Peacock, uh, which is the Peacock is in the NBC logo, so it's, it's sort of a spin-off of NBC Television, but doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. Um, I mentioned, uh, you know, MGM seems to have some life separate from Amazon, Amazon uh, from Prime Video. So, w- what's happening is that I think quite a lot of these uh, th- these people are feeling their way, 
but mm. uh, in in the business and deciding what they want to do. And I should just say parenthetically is what what the studios have always done is they try to ma- maximize every what they call window within the chain of exploitation of the picture. So classically, you'd have the theatrical window, the cinemas, and pre-streaming. Then you'd have home video, which used to be cassettes and then became DVDs. And then you had pay television, which was uh, uh, in the United States, HBO, and also Showtime, uh, which... uh, uh, they're still trying to find a role for. Then you'd have so-called free television. You'd, and, and the idea was that they would squeeze every penny out of every window before going on to the next window. Uh, that was that was just the way the way they work, the way they think. And some and a company that was brilliant at that was D- Disney. That you know partly because of the strength of their their of, of what what they produced, but could absolutely calibrate every window to maximize the revenues from it. Streaming has really messed up the windows completely. Mm. Um, I mean, streaming has contributed to the decline of home video, for instance. Um, Although, quite interestingly enough, there was a European study just came out this week that said that so-called retail DVD, that's where you you physically buy a DVD, DVD for home, still uh, represents up uh, nearly forty percent of the turnover of uh, video products in Europe. Still, people, uh, I think, particularly collectors, are buying DVDs for that. But it's 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 a it's a it's a market in flux, constant flux, uh, and it's in, it's interesting. The you know the arrivals, the companies that have arrived. Uh, are, as you mentioned, companies with no experience, prior experience of the film business. Uh, Netflix, which of course was a, uh, uh, was set, set up to deliver physical DVDs, uh, by post, uh, to customers and was hugely successful at it. Um, they were, you know, they're one of the oldest names in this business. Uh, and, and they are the, in terms of, I think, uh, subscribers, the number one streamer. Uh, but be- well, before they came into it, they had no experience in actually making films. And and also, we should bear in mind, television programs. They make a lot of, these companies make a lot of TV programs. No experience whatsoever. They were very good at shipping stuff to people and getting them back. Their system was incredibly streamlined and very, very effective. And one of the things that drove uh, the neighborhood video stores, including the national chains, out of business was that uh, returning your DVD, ordering your DVD online and returning it in a prepaid envelope, which you just dropped in your box, was so much better than going to the video store. It just killed that business day. But they didn't know anything about making films. Uh, Apple, the same thing. Uh, very, 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 very good at uh, creating consumer electronics, um, and kind of, and also sort of like inventing uh, types of co- consumer electronics that are, that 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 are new, like the iPod, uh, the iPhone, uh, the iPad, and so on. But no experience whatsoever of making films and TV programs. But but also and- good at distribution. If I can jump in, because of what was iTunes, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, uh, Apple, Apple, Apple had distribution, although I think the um, 
I mean, it's it's interesting actually. What I think happened, and what what the reason Netflix got into uh, streaming so effectively. Uh, I mean, I think they could see that the DVD market was was declining, um, and uh, and that you know, and that was their business. So they needed to find a diversification, uh, and. What they had was, and it's very, very little spoken about, but I think it was absolutely key for Netflix, is what they had was millions and millions of email addresses. They knew every single uh, uh, potential customer for a streaming service. Uh, and if you remember going back, the original offer was a blended service. You could have uh, whatever whatever it was, ten dollars a month or whatever it was back then. You could have two two DVDs to rent plus the streaming service, uh, and without increasing your subscription. So they come in and they and they they basically they still actually have a few diehard DVD subscribers out there who are still getting physical DVDs from Netflix. But basically, they replaced their DVD physical DVD market with um, uh, with with streaming customers because they were able to write to all of them and push uh, and say, "Well, we have you as a customer now. We're just going to convert you into a streaming customer." Uh, and that was a, a massive adv- advantage. I think uh, Apple with iTunes didn't have that quite that intimate connection with their um, uh, uh, Amazon had it in a slightly different way because uh, Amazon Prime, as it originally was, and you may remember, uh, it was basically a, a way of cutting down on the cost of shipping Amazon products. Uh, it, by paying an annual subscription uh, to Amazon, you could get any number of products shipped for you, and you didn't have that uh, extra five, six, seven euro being added to every single shipment uh, to get it shipped to you. Amazon had that, and they did what Netflix did, which was said, "Well, we're throwing in Amazon Prime for free," uh, and it it becomes in the end the uh, principal thing for Amazon. Although Amazon because it has such a it's it's non audiovisual market was so much bigger than uh, its audiovisual market. All of that is still very important for them as as, as well. But it's intriguing that they, can't, they these companies with no background in the actual production of films come in, and they've been feeling their way. Uh, there there was you may remember. You know, eighteen months ago, a huge amount of stuff being being written about Netflix being in trouble because their uh, their um, subscriber level had allegedly peaked. Now, people like you and me, Toby, who are very elderly, uh, remember uh, cable churn, uh, which was which was a measure of how successful a U- United States cable network whether it was CNN or Discovery Channel or or whatever, how successful it was, was but was not mainly about whether its subscription levels were going up or down, but was how many people were leaving the network against how many people were coming in every month. That 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 created a, a coefficient which is called churn. All right. Um, everybody's forgotten about churn. But in fact the, the proper metric to apply to what was happening with Netflix uh 
inevitably they were going to hit 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 a peak uh, in in their viewership because it was a market that was expanding and it can't expand uh, indefinitely. Also, there had been COVID and other things which were market distorters. And but uh, as as soon as Netflix took a tiny dip, uh, what uh, so. Someone famously called the teenage scribblers, uh, which is basically Wall Street analysts who are an, who are analyzing quarterly reports of yeah. public, 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 publicly quoted companies, all started to say this is the beginning of the end for Netflix. Well, of course, it turned out that that was you know Netflix share price. I, I read is uh, higher than ever, uh, and there's. Uh, uh, and and this was only a temporary blip. Netflix did have a problem. Which, as far as I've been able to see, only one paper really wrote adequately about it, and that was the Hollywood Reporter. Um, wrote uh, very, very good articles uh, about the turnover in not of Netflix subscribers, the turnover in their creative teams, the people who were actually commissioning, producing films and TV shows for them. And what it really showed, and it shouldn't surprise anybody, was that there was, you know, there was a huge steep learning curve for companies like Netflix and Apple uh, uh, in entering this market and some things they did right and some things they did badly. And when there were things that mistakes that they made, they then had to address them, whether it was hiring new people, getting rid of old people, changing the orientation. in addition to that, one should kind of consider their overall, their, their major business strategy, because these are companies that are, were very cash rich. Netflix uh, and uh, and Apple have sit on absolute mountains of cash, Apple in particular. And uh, there was a there was a measure of them buying their way into the market. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're not going to look at the quarterly reports. Uh, Does this make us profitable between now and March? Um, We're going to actually see where are we going to be in three or five years time. And they were prepared to spend money to buy market. And part of that was by making expensive programs and films. Uh, I think they have begun to realize what works and what doesn't work for them. But in order to get to that place, they had to have a lot of duds. Uh, and they they did have a lot of that. I mean, looking at the awards, which is sort of like the pretext for this conversation. Um, uh, and I, excuse me, I have to consult some notes here. Uh, but I I see among the films that are actually uh, contenders for various awards, uh, and I'm looking at that quite broadly. I'm seeing Netflix has the biggest, largest number. Uh, they have films like Maestro, the uh, Leonard uh, Bernstein movie, directed, written, and starring Bradley Cooper with uh, uh, Carrie Mulligan, um, which uh, is a is a contender. A film that was turned out not to be a contender, but I think people thought would have been uh, Michael Mann's film, The Killer, uh, with uh, with Michael Fassbender, which really hasn't appeared on anybody's radar for the awards, but. Uh, I'm sure when they were making it, they thought they saw it as that. That that um, I don't know if you're familiar with this film, Nyad, uh, about the American swimmer Diana Nyad, um, with uh, Jodie Foster and uh, Annette Bening, uh, which is which has been, uh, which I think will get 
certainly some actor nominations for for for, for Foster and Benning. Um, there's a Spanish Spanish stroke Argentine film called Society of the Snow uh, about uh, about a p- people escaping from a plane crash in the Andes. Um, then Chicken Run, Chicken Run Two, uh, you know, which is doing very nicely in for the animation awards. Uh, a whole bunch of films. Uh, uh, the point being is that actually Netflix is very heavily invested in uh, awards films. Um, Do you think that the tendency to say it has to have had a theatrical release, however brief, however contingent, do you think that's just going to die? Well, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting that, that people are going to the cinemas to see movies. Uh, I mean, we saw it this summer. Uh, for all the hype, Barbie and Oppenheimer were extremely successful box office movies. Um mm-hmm. And uh, it was possible in the summer to get people out to uh, to these kinds of movies. Uh, Barbie, which was a sort of subversive genre movie, if you like. Uh, <laughs> uh, but an Oppenheimer, which was no kind of genre movie at all, uh, did ex- did extremely well. Uh, now, in terms of, you know, NATO uh, thanking uh, uh, Apple, that, of course, what they're talking about is, is Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, Scorsese movie. Now, now Scorsese has got himself into a place where um, the streamers are actually very congenial producers for him because they give him the money he needs to make the film. Killers of the Flower Moon was a very expensive movie. Um, They really don't care about how long the film is. So uh, he wants to bring in a movie for two and three quarter hours. They'll just say, fine. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's uh, uh, and one thing Scorsese insists on is a theatrical window for his films. Um, and that's he can do that because he's Martin Bloody Scorsese. <laughs> you know, he has he has that power and they want the prestige of his films. Uh, and uh so I don't believe, I think that Killers of the Flower Moon is actually only going out on Apple TV, I think maybe this week or next week. It's free now for the first time. You could buy it, as in yeah. you know, rent it, um, yes. I think a couple of weeks ago, at least here in, in Spain. Yeah. Well, that is another thing. Licensing considerations may vary yeah. what films are available in what markets. Yeah. So, for instance, some of the Netflix films that I'm I'm looking at on my list are not available on Netflix in Ireland, where I am. Uh, some of them turn up on Sky Television, which I, I mentioned. They're a UK-only company, but they're um, owned by Comcast, uh, and they have their own streaming. Um, they're... Uh, their, their their movie strand, which is called Sky Cinema, is an on demand um, service where you can you can just say I want to watch film X and you download it immediately and you watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have films which elsewhere are going out on Netflix, but obviously for licensing reasons are in are, are going out on Sky. But I think uh, it's it's interesting to see how um, other uh, 
companies are still sort of floundering around working out what they're going to do next. I mean, Disney is an interesting example. I mean, they're obviously a substantial producer of, or, or financier or distributor of movies. Uh, they have a num- quite a number of movies which, uh, which are in contention for uh, awards uh, because it's not, not, not only Disney – uh, the the classic Disney children's stroke animation label, but there's also Fox, 20th Century Fox Studios, which they bought. The famous Fox uh, brands like Searchlight, which which do in more independent style movies and so on. All of this is under the Disney banner now. Mm, mm. Uh, interestingly, interestingly, they're not on Disney Plus for streaming. Uh, that they haven't gone down the uh, Netflix route, uh, you know, where you know they might allow some theatrical for uh, for some of the films, but it's basically these things go on to Netflix and are uh, and are seen principally there. Disney is still holding on to and possibly correctly the theatrical route. You know, in so there's animation. I think uh, I can see. Um, I think three movies uh spider-man the new one across the spider-verse which is an animation not a live live action film you know oddly you know it starts out as a comic book becomes a live action film now is a now is is animated uh wish which is a more sort of classic disney um uh, style uh film these are not available on disney plus uh poor things the uh the uh yorgos uh lanthimos film uh, with Emma Stone, uh, which is a searchlight film, and therefore under the Disney banner, although we don't think of it as a Disney film, uh, that's not available on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting. Um, uh, they're still working things out. Uh, I mentioned Barbie, which is a Universal movie. Um, they have an animated movie, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Uh, they also have the Holdovers, which uh, is uh, with Paul Giamatti, um, which is uh, getting quite a lot of attention. Uh, it's a film, I've, I've, if you've not seen it, it's it has sort of elements of Dead Poet Society and uh, it's set at a private school. Uh, also, um, what, Scent of a Woman, the, uh, the remake with Al Pacino, uh, you know, the the fish out of water at private school and, you know, it's, it's quite a nice film. Paul Giamatti is very good in it. Um, and Barbie, of course, these aren't available on streamers at the moment. Yeah. So universal is still working out what is part, what, what, yeah. what is strategy is going to be. So is uh, Sony. Um, um, they have, um, Uh, they they have like two three movies. Uh, Sony's policy seems to have been to um, license to different streamers. Uh, Paramount is still working itself out. They have another animated film in contention, um, Teenage Mutant Turtles, the latest Mutant Mayhem. Uh, so what, what we're seeing is there's still companies working out what their strategy is going yeah. to be. Yeah, uh, and there is I I think. There's going to be a smart way of showing certain films theatrically, um, films, you know, films which might be date movies, uh, genre movies, you know, horror and things like that. Uh, the the gloss seems to be going off um, the Marvel style super, super superhero yes. movie. 
though that's possibly just because they made too many of them. Uh, that could still turn out to be a, uh, uh, a a rich seam if it just needs to be mined better. So this is the the Leninist uh, basis of your critique, Bill, that capitalism <laughs> inevitably leads to overproduction. But it's an interesting one because for a long time, that sort of action-adventure series that could be continued mm-hmm. was a staple of money for the studios. They cost a lot to make these things, mm-hmm. but they brought in a lot of revenue across all these different windows you mentioned, mm-hmm. and in particular theatrically. And what's fascinating, I think, about the Barbie and Oppenheimer success is that these are, in many ways, ideas movies. You know, they're actually quite complicated. As you say, uh, with Barbie, it's a fascinating play with genre. And yet- well, well, I should also say that Mattel has made hundreds of millions of dollars out of Barbie uh, from, from selling more Barbie dolls. So, yeah. <laughs> so it is not to say that they're outside the commodity system, but it's to say that... The, the good bet for studios that maybe wanted to distribute smaller, in inverted commas, films or mature themes, not in a sexual sense, but non-adolescent themes, the way that those people within those organisations could do that in smaller entities like, say, Fox Searchlight or whatever, mm. was because they had these guaranteed big-ticket items that would bring in hundreds of millions that's now more in play, as you say, isn't it? Theatrically. Well, yeah. Uh, well, 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 yes. I mean, there are the, the number of uh, sort of home run big ticket uh, franchises are now, I think, very, very small. Uh, and, you know, they would probably include things like James Bond, but that's for only, you know, they're making one of James Bond film every three to five years. It's not like, and it's not like they're doing. Uh, as they do with everybody else, they're not making, you know, background stories. You know, James, uh, James Bond at 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 school <laughs> stories, or, or they're not making, you know, future generations. You know, James Bond the third. They're stuck with what they have, and they can make that every three to five years. Yeah. And- yeah. That's fine, but it's it, it's very good for the broccoli family who own James Bond. But it's not as uh, it's it's not uh, something that on the balance sheet of a studio that has a guaranteed return year in year out. And in fact, the studio that it kept going, that it kept solvent for years, MGM, has in a sense folded. So, Bill, we've got about five minutes left, and I wanted to do two things in those five minutes. The the, the second of which is to throw open to you anything you'd like to add, which might be about awards season or it might not. But the first is one question to you, because I've and you've mentioned your time as a journalist and as a lawyer. You also do a lot of other kinds of writing, including scholarly writing. Yeah. I wondered about the ways in which your journalistic and legal backgrounds inform the writing you do or whether there are other influences that are quite different, quite distinct, like having worked in dramaturgy, uh, having been a professor of media studies, having read lots and lots of cultural theory, having an undergrad degree, a master's degree, and a doctorate in addition to your legal qualifications. Well, uh, you know, I was thinking, funnily enough, I was thinking, you know, I started off as what today they would call a textual scholar. That is, I, I studied English literature for my first two degrees. Uh, 
and and that still informs a lot of what I, I the mm-hmm. way I think about things. And 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 I was thinking today about uh, there's a character in Middlemarch in George Eliot's Middlemarch, the rather dull. Uh, uh, scholar Kazorban that the heroine Dorothea mistakenly marries uh, and he is trying to do he, he is trying to write this scholarly work that will never be finished, never be finished. Uh, yeah. he, he, he's trying to write a sort of conspectus of everything in the air. I think it's in the Bible I mean you know it's like it, it's impossibly vast subject there's also a character in David Lodge's Trading Places Morris Zapp who's trying to write the, the book on Jane Austen, which will make it unnecessary to write any future books on Jane Austen, because it will cover every single thing, uh, you know, imaginable that anybody could ever conceivably want to say. And I think I, the reason I mentioned it is I think it's, a, uh, you know, for me, coming from a lot of different, uh, a number of different disciplines, uh, and and one of the one of the things about media and cultural studies is that um anything can be the pretext for uh a meditation uh you could you can you could start thinking about this uh ballpoint pen and thinking about well this is really interesting the you know the 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 the, the change from the fountain pen to the ballpoint pen what did that mean culturally and by the way i'm not knocking that i'm sure somebody could do it and do it really well uh but it's you know they they uh, i i sometimes find myself kind of getting lost under this welter of possibilities and try to sort of extract myself and say i'm going to think about that i'm going to talk about that uh, <laughs> but but they they do uh they do um the interesting thing is it turns up surprising things i mean as you i think you know i've been doing a little bit of work on um of all things uh the holocaust uh and i've been i've been doing some work on uh the work that the lawyers did, did on the building of Auschwitz, and this is this is material that's been known since at least the 1940s, uh, but I don't think it's really been, you know, talked about what are lawyers doing, uh, what were lawyers doing, and you know, lawyers were doing what lawyers do, which was making notes and thinking about, and not thinking about the actual consequences of what they're engaged in. Uh, that I think that that is, I think, sort of way in which this piece I'm developing, the way in which my kind of cultural studies and my legal studies uh, and my interest in history, which is, I don't, I'm not qualified in, but I've, I spend a lot of time thinking about history kind of come together in surprising ways. And that's, well, that's interesting for me. I don't know if it has any interest for anyone else. And Bill, to finish in a couple of minutes, if we could, anything you want to add to our conversation to this point? Well, I mean, I hope this is uh, uh, this this is interesting. I think you know, as as far as film is is concerned, uh, <laughs> it's a really interesting watch this space kind of moment. There's a a, a a very fundamental reorganizing of the of all aspects of the film industry, by which I mean effectively the American film industry. I think it's going to remain American uh, in all the ways that it has done. Um, And I think it's quite interesting to see quite a number of substantial companies, and I've mentioned them all, who don't really know what they're going to do next. Um, I see that with 
Discovery Warner, with Universal, with Disney to an extent, with Paramount, with Sony Stroke Columbia. Uh, They are kind of floundering in an interesting way. I don't mean this in an existential way, just as we see that if you look at the original members of the MPAA, um, it's basically 80, 90% of them are the same members today. Uh, They may have merged and change but been taken over i think we're going to see the same figures in there um in a, in, a, in 10 years time 20 years time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i'll throw in one final thing if i have 30 seconds yeah, yeah absolutely please fire away one thing right thing i didn't mention very interesting movie m-u-b-i very 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 interesting company because it's doing what you know art distributors Say so you think of comp- companies like Curzon in the UK or Janus in the United States always did traditionally. Mm-hmm. They're moving art movies into in, into uh, streaming, and they have and it's not talked about it. They have money behind them. The guy who set up movie, he's a Turkish guy. He has an MBA from Stanford University. He worked at Goldman Sachs, uh, and he is he is he obviously. I think loves these movies, but it's it's interesting that people don't talk about movie as a streamer, but they have um, the Karismaki film Fallen Leaves. Uh, mm-hmm. They have uh, a nice movie called Passages, which is getting some uh, awards action. Um, there's a British film called How to Have Sex, which has had fantastic reviews and certainly will win some BAFTA awards. Um, the, as you know, in terms of Dewey. Is gigantism the only way forward? The huge, yeah. the huge Netflixes, the huge Apples. I think they will continue to be huge. The huge Disney Plus when they get themselves sorted out. But the interesting thing is there are also opportunities for a company like uh, Mubi, who are not only now acquiring films, they're producing them, they're financing them. So that that's 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 something to watch as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Bill. In every conversation over our friendship of almost 20 years duration, I've learned something. And today I've probably learned as much as in any of those conversations. It was great. Well, it's always good, always good to talk to you. I love this podcast. It's a great thing. Thank you.